Good morning. It's good to be back with you this morning. I am honored and humbled that you've given me the opportunity to come back and to uh, be with you again, to worship with you again, and to have the opportunity to bring God's Word to you again. One of the things that struck me from the beginning is the amount of prayer that this church does. And several things happened this morning. A couple of things happened this morning that made me realize that God is answering prayer. Once I first got here and I was talking to Tammy and she was talking about you know, this being prayer card exchange day. And I didn't know anything about that. And I thought, well, isn't that amazing? I'm preaching on prayer. And then I noticed the invitation hymn, and this guy something to do exactly with one of the verses uh, that we'll be looking at this morning. And it's just like God worked to put this service together. So I feel like he has a special word for us this morning. It's going to bless us in a special way this morning. And I'm just pleased to have an opportunity to be a part of that. Hey, if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll begin reading in a few moments with verse 15. I imagine that you pray. Most Americans pray. Well, you hear on the news, usually when there's been a disaster, keep these people in your prayers. Or you'll say, we're praying for you. You know, you're not left. And I... You know, sometimes I think, Tammy, that, you know, there's people praying that <laughs> not getting anywhere. But uh, the uh, attitude in our land is that we still recognize there's a God and we still pray to Him. You pray. What do you pray for? I want you to be thinking about that this morning. What do you pray for? And, you know, what can we be praying for? If you look at the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul, you see several places where he has the prayers that he prayed for people. And we're going to look at one of those passages this, this morning and see what he prayed for people, and that can be a pattern of what we should be praying for one another. Not just the requests that we turn in together, but also these things from God's Word that will help us to get to the heart of some of the things we need to pray for each other. So let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. For this reason... Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, as we begin this passage, I want you to notice what it says about Jesus. Most of us, when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. 
we understand that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and so we go to God through Christ. And most of the time, we end our prayers in Jesus' name. So we are praying through Jesus. And notice, first of all, what this passage has to say about Jesus. Look at him. Look in, in verse 20. It talked about him being raised from the dead. Christ was raised from the dead. That's the central affirmation of the Christian faith. When Simon Peter preached the first Christian sermon, he gave emphasis after emphasis on Christ has been raised from the dead. We are witnesses. We saw him. God fulfilled his promises. Christ was raised from the dead. No other religious leader can make that claim. Only Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is unique. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And He is the one who we pray through. We pray through a risen Savior. We pray through a risen Savior whose resurrection shows God's power. If you look at the Old Testament, you see the power of God exhibited in the Exodus where the people of God were brought out of slavery in the land of Egypt and taken to the promised land. In the New Testament, the power of God is shown in the resurrection of Jesus and how through His resurrection we will have the ability to overcome sin and He will take us to heaven. We serve a risen Savior. He is the Savior who worked in our lives in the past if we are believers and brought us to the place of salvation. He is a Savior who will come again for us and take us to be with Him. We have a future with Him. But He is also a present Savior who walks with us day by day and who brings our petitions to the throne of God. So notice that it says that we serve a risen Savior. And notice also that we serve a Savior who is seated at God's right hand. He's seated at God's right hand. He's been given that exalted place. Now, when Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, who was saved, who, who was raised, who was seated at God's right hand, makes intercession for us. Jesus is at God's right hand, and He prays for us. He makes intercession for us. Our Savior is praying for us. The writer to Hebrews said this, The Son, of course referring to Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And the picture is of an oriental potentate who is ruling in supreme power and his prime minister is right with him, there to advise him and there to work with him. That's the picture of Jesus, seated at God's right hand, speaking to God on our behalf. Jesus is also the one with all power. Listen for this. Seated him at the right hand of the heavenly realm, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given. 
Jesus is the one who has all power and authority. All above every other one of these dominions and powers and principalities. These, these words are just kind of general terms. You know, the ancients and a lot of people today believe and believe correctly that God is a spiritual power, but so is Satan, so are angels, so are demons. There are other powers out there. What is being said? Jesus is above them all. Remember before he went back to heaven, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. In every realm that you can imagine, Jesus is supreme. All authority belongs to him. And then it reminds us of something else. It reminds us that all things have been placed under his feet and he has been pointed head of everything for the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, who's the head of the church? Who's the head of some churches you've known? Who's the head? Maybe this church. Is the preacher the head? Are the deacons the head? An influential member of the head? A particular committee the head? Different denominations and different uh, churches have different ways that they organize themselves. And, you know, the Catholic Church has the Pope. You know, some churches have a synod. Some have a bishop. You know, in Baptist life we say it's the congregation. But however you do it, ultimately Jesus is the head. And our goal is not to follow our will, but His will. Our goal is not to exalt ourselves, but to exalt Jesus. So, Jesus, risen, seated at God's right hand, all power and authority, the head of the church. Because of this Jesus, we do a couple of things. Look at verse 15. Paul said, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Because Jesus is all of those things we've just been looking at, we put our faith in Him. Where had you rather put your faith? He's the risen Savior, the one with all authority, the one at the right hand of God, the one who ultimately saves us. So our faith is put in Jesus. Now, notice what it says there. Faith in Christ Jesus and love for the saints. Don't get those mixed up. Now, I'm not saying you don't love Christ because you do, but I'm just saying don't put your faith in people. Now, you trust people, of course, but your salvation faith can't be in other people. Your salvation faith can't be in your parents' faith or whether or not they were good. can't be in how good your church is. Your faith's got to be in Jesus. Yeah, people might let us down. Yeah. Paul said we have the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels. We're still earthen vessels and we still mess up. And if you put your faith in other people and people left you down, what's going to happen to your faith? I bet you've known people who left the church because they got upset with somebody in the church for something they said or did or something they didn't say or do. You can't put your faith in people. You put your faith in Jesus and all that He is. And then, because you put your faith in Jesus, what do you do? You love the saints. Now, saints aren't super Christians in the New Testament. Saints are believers. Well, you're a saint if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. 
I won't ask your husband or your wife whether that's true or not, but you know. You're still a saint because you've been made righteous by the blood of Christ. And what are you supposed to do for each other? You love each other. You love each other. You love each other because God first loved you. And that love was placed in your heart when you received Jesus as Savior. And so you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the mark of believers. By this, Jesus said, will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. That's our distinguishing characteristic, or should be. And since that's our distinguishing characteristic, one of the ways that we love each other is to pray for each other. Samuel said to the Israelites, far be it from me to sin against God by failing to pray for you. So we pray for one another. And I, you know, it's just exciting to see you with your prayer ministry praying for one another. But as you pray for one another, you need to be praying not just the request that we develop in our human minds, but the request that God gives us through His Word to know that we are to pray with each other. So we pray some things for one another. And we're going to be looking at some of those things this morning. What do you pray? You pray biblical prayers. Now, there are several passages of Scripture that give us those biblical prayers. And one of them is the one that we're looking at this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Write these down. If you've got a blank space in your bulletin there, if you, you know, like to take notes and things, write these down right in the flyleaf of your Bible. We're going to look at several of them. There's another one from Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. They're going to be on the screen, so if I go too fast, don't worry about it. The, uh, Philippians 1, 9 through 11, Colossians 1, 9 through 12, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 5. These are things that we're to be praying for one another. Now, you pray for healing when you're sick, of course. Somebody's going through financial difficulty, you pray about that. There's a problem in a relationship, you pray about that. You know, all of the struggles and things that we go through here in our life, we pray for each other with those things. Well and good. But how much do we pray for our spiritual development? Sometimes that gets left out. I've been a pastor for over 40 years. Most of the time, the spiritual needs that are brought to God concerning another person is for a lost person to be brought to salvation. I've heard a lot of prayers in churches. I've heard a lot of prayers in conventions. I've heard a lot of prayers when we get together as a group of ministers sometimes. Uh, very rarely do I hear believers praying for the spiritual development of each other. And yet, that's what Paul prayed for in these verses you've got before you. So here's a pattern for us. We don't just pray for our earthly requests, for the physical side of our lives. We also pray for the spiritual side of our lives and the spiritual side of our lives as believers. So let's look and begin to see what some of these are. Paul said in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. We need to pray for a, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And in my Bible, that word spirit 
has a capital S. It means the Holy Spirit. And that's what the text means. It's the Holy Spirit. We pray that each of you will have the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus taught us some things about the Holy Spirit. He taught us that the Holy Spirit comes to be among us as believers and lives within us. It's God Himself come to live in us and among us as believers. He taught us that in John 14. In John 16, He also taught us that this Holy Spirit convicts of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. We're convicted of the sins that we have and realize that we are sinners and need a Savior. We're convicted of the righteousness that Jesus has and that we're supposed to have that same kind of righteousness and when we fall short and know that one day there's going to be a judgment, then we realize we need a Savior and we're led to the place where we invite Jesus into our lives to forgive us of our sin, give us His righteousness, take away the fear of judgment, and give us the hope of eternal life. The Holy Spirit... Again, in John 6, Jesus taught us, gives us wisdom, brings to our remembrance all that Jesus said and helps us to understand it. So we pray for each other that we'll have that spirit of wisdom and revelation. And then he says something else. He says, I pray that so that you may know Him better, so that you may know God better. Yeah, the essence of our faith is knowing God. Now I want you to draw a distinction. The scripture doesn't say that it's knowing about God. It doesn't say that it's knowing about Jesus. A lot of people know about God. A lot of people know about Jesus. Doesn't make any difference how they live. They haven't come to Him and invited Him in, into their lives, but they know about Him. But the essence of the faith is knowing about Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus put it clearly. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He's talking about a personal relationship here. He's not talking about mental facts. He's talking about the kind of belief that helps us to really know God and be in relationship with God and live in that relationship day by day. A couple of weeks ago, I passed a sign in front of the church on the church marquee. It had the little message, you know the Bible, but do you know the God of the Bible? You know there's a big difference. There are people who know the Bible pretty well. They don't know God. So Paul says, pray that each other will really know God and not just know Him, but get to know Him better. You see, it's to be a lifelong endeavor. We keep getting to know God better and better. Simon Peter wrote about that. Simon Peter, in, in Saint Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he said, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We walk with Him day by day and get to know Him. How do you get to know someone? Spending time with them. So you walk with them and spend time with them. So He reminds us that. And then He says in verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. 
In other words, that you may see the deep things of the Spirit, that you may see spiritual things and not just human things. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul said, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. But in verse 6 he says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We don't know God. We don't get that wisdom and revelation by human endeavor, human thought. It's something that God reveals to us. It's something that comes as we live out that relationship with Him that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. Have you ever stopped to think how much the Bible says about your heart? About who you are deep on the inside? Psalmist said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He also said, Search me and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. Jeremiah said that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Jesus had some things to say about the heart. Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus said, Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, dishonesty, slander. Our human hearts are warped and twisted. But how do we come to know God? When we believe with all our mind and our heart. We believe with our heart. You know, there's a big difference between believing with your head and believing with your heart. Now, there's a verse of Scripture, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. It's on the screen. Look at that closely. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What does it mean to believe with your heart? It's more than believing facts. You believe facts with your mind. I think two things. I think one of them is the idea of trust. It's the idea of trust. If you, if you believe in your heart in something, you're willing to trust yourself to it. If you believe in Jesus in your heart, you trust him. And then the other part of it is commitment. If you believe in your heart, you make a commitment. Yeah. You're married. When you got married, hopefully you got married out of what was in your heart. You, know, you just didn't make a list on a sheet of paper and say, okay, she's this, 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 she's not this, this, and this, but I believe I could put up with this, this, and this, but I don't have to put up with that, that, and that. You know, it doesn't work that way, does it? You know, it's a matter of your heart. You fall in love with your heart. So there's the idea of trust. I trust this person to be a good mate to me and to be faithful to me. And it's a matter of commitment. I will be a good mate to this person and I will be faithful to this person. That's the way it works with salvation. That's the way it works in our relationship with God. We trust Him with our hearts. And we are trusting Him to forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. 
two things we never could do for ourselves. And we're committing ourselves to Him to let Jesus be Lord. That means ruler, master, boss, supervisor. Give Him first place. So we believe with our hearts and then we are enlightened in our hearts and after we become believers, then in our hearts we're to know some things. Notice, know the hope to which He has called you. Know the hope to which he has called you. Several years ago off the coast of Maine, a ship ran into a submarine that was on the surface and the submarine sank. Fortunately, it wasn't terribly, terribly deep, but the submarine was without power, had been damaged that much, and so, you know, ships were rescued, ships were brought in, divers went down, and one of them got up next to the submarine and heard tapping, and it was in Morris Code, and he knew Morris Code, and the words were, is there any hope? That's a question our world is asking. We're living in an age where people believe in, you know, just the spontaneous creation of life and all that there is, and in, you know, secular evolution, and, you know, you're just a thing, and you live for a little while, and you die, and that's it. There's no hope in that. There's no hope in that. It's a horrible thing to live without hope. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 Paul talked about unbelievers and he said they are without hope and without God in the world. Oh, what a terrible state to be in. Without hope. It's hard to live in this old world without hope. Without God. It's hard to live in this world without God and knowing that He's there and loves you and cares for you and is going to help you. But we have that hope. You know, we serve a God of hope. Jeremiah talked about the hope that we have, that God wants to prosper us and give us a hope and a future. And Paul wrote to the Romans, and he he talked about hope there, and he, he called God the God of hope in that particular passage. He said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 6 says that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. So we have a hope. Then something else, we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. You know, people say, man, I wish I had a rich uncle that died and leave me a a million dollars. Well, you may not have a rich uncle, but you know what? You've got a rich heavenly father. You've got a rich heavenly father. And this heavenly father owns all things. What did he say in Romans 8? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We're heirs of the universe. Have you thought about the inheritance that is yours as a child of God? You're a brother or sister to Christ and you inherit all. Your heavenly Father owns it all and he's willed it to you. What an inheritance. We need to know about that inheritance and think about it and dream about it. And then he also speaks about something else. He speaks about his incomparably great power for us who believe. And and notice how he talks about that power. Incomparable power, great power, power like working, 
mighty strength exerted in Christ, raised him from the dead, seated him far above. He's just straining at the language to remind us of the power that raised Christ and that power is available to us. Available to us as unbelievers. That power is available to us to overcome the sin that's in our lives. That power is available to us to overcome death so that death no more will have dominion over us like it no more had dominion over Christ. It's the power to live the Christian life day by day. It's the power to put up with the difficult circumstances that we face in life. It's the power to be able to serve the Lord, not in our strength, but in His strength. In the newspaper, there was a, a picture of what it looked like was a man pushing a piano up to the second floor balcony of an apartment building. And you, you glance at it at first, you think, man, how can he be that strong? And then you read the article and you look at the picture closely and you realize what's happening, that there's a cable attached to the piano. And the crane is pulling it up. And he's just kind of guiding it and keeping it from hitting against the wall. Well, that's a picture of our power. It comes from above, not from us. We're just picked in to God's power, His incomparably great power that He showed in Christ, which can be ours. And we pray to one another, pray for one another, that we might know our riches, our inheritance, our hope, and our power. And also, if you go on down a little further, that if Christ is head of the church, we're His body. And we are a part of that body. And we find a place to be able to serve in the church so that we're one part, a significant part, and we discover our spiritual gifts and we use them for Christ's glory. Now, all of these things are things that Paul is pointing out to us in these passages of Scripture that we could pray for one another. This passage of Scripture is calling us to pray biblical prayers for one another because we've accepted Christ, because we've received His salvation, because we put our trust in Him, we love other believers, and as we love other believers, one way we show that love is to pray for them, and we pray for them biblical prayers, as the Bible has shown us. So I would challenge you today, as you pray for each other, as you pray for your mate, as you pray for your children or your grandchildren or your friends or your relatives, pray biblical prayers for them. Pray what Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Look later and pray what he prayed for the Philippians and what he prayed for the Colossians and what he prayed for the Thessalonians. Can you imagine what can happen if you as a congregation start praying biblical prayers for each other? What transformation might take place for your blessing and for the glory of God and for His work through you in this community? So the invitation today, if you're a believer, is to recommit yourself to prayer. Recommit yourself to praying biblical prayers for each other. 
And when you've got those lists that you've got on your prayer cards today, you pray for the request that person's requested you to pray for. But as you pray for them day by day, maybe one a day, pick up these biblical requests and pray those for these people as well. And I think it's going to be a blessing. I think God's going to honor that and use that. Something else you may need to think about today. Do you know God? Do you know Christ? And again, I'm not saying, asking, do you know about them? Do you know them? Do you have a personal relationship with them? Let me say it another way. How's your heart when it comes to Christ? Do you have Him in your heart? Do you have Him in your life? You know, you may need to say today, my heart isn't clean. My heart isn't deceitful. It is deceitful. It, it trips me up sometimes. Maybe you would say today, my heart's broken. And you realize that you really need a Savior. That just reading the Bible, just coming to church, just trying to be good, that's not going to get you anywhere. You realize that you need a Savior who is able to create within you a clean heart and to give you His righteousness. Maybe you are in the world today without God and without hope, and you need that hope. And God made you, and God loved you, and God gave His Son for you so that you can have cleansing, so that you can be made righteous and come into His presence, so that you can be forgiven of your sin, so that you can have eternal life, so that you can have hope, so that you can become His child and look forward to the inheritance that He has for you. Just a moment. I'm going to sing the invitation hymn, number 426. I will stand at the church. If need be, some of the church members will, will come. Maybe you need to come today and say, I'm ready to say openly, I believe in my heart in Jesus. I confess Him openly as my Lord and Savior so that you might receive salvation. Maybe you need to come today and rededicate yourself publicly to praying biblical prayers for the, your fellow church members. Or maybe you would, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, say, God's working in this church. He's leading me to be a part of it. And you would put your membership here. Respond as we sing together.